0: In this podcast, Dr. Jeffrey H. Newcorn discusses treatment options for adolescents and adults with ADHD. He first reviews psychosocial treatments, including cognitive behavioral therapy and environmental interventions. He then discusses issues related to the pharmacological treatment of adolescent and adult ADHD, including the need to ensure an adequate duration of effect. Finally, he provides specific information on stimulant and non-stimulant medications approved for the treatment of adult ADHD. It's important to begin by asking why should we treat ADHD in adults. We know that ADHD is a reasonably stable condition over the course of life. On the other hand, the amount of impairment that people have from ADHD does change from time to time. And it's definitely related to context. And so the implication of that is that the need for treatment may vary at different times. Now, we talk about treating the impairment from core symptoms. And the important point there is that we treat impairment, not just symptoms. If you're a person that likes to be active and you're somewhat hyperactive and you previously were diagnosed and treated with ADHD, that doesn't mean that your hyperactivity has to be treated at this moment. The question is how impairing is the activity level that that individual has. And so uh, we could think about academic or occupational problems related to problems with attention. We could talk about task completion, time management, those kinds of issues. Relationship problems or self-esteem problems all could be important targets of treatment. It's also important to think about altering the course of other disorders. This is a less frequently identified reason to treat, but it's very important. ADHD in adults presents with many other disorders and uh, it certainly increases risk for other disorders. And commonly, there is secondary depression or anxiety, rather high percentages of people. And uh, thinking about changing the trajectory of those other conditions is quite an important clinical point, although not often a target of clinical trials research. Now, we're going to talk mainly about medication, but at the same time, we're going to think about a variety of non-medication interventions, uh, certainly psychoeducation. We want to think about more targeted behavior therapies uh, based on cognitive behavioral approaches, and we want to think about whether you can do organizational and time management training. So environmental modifications are important for individuals with ADHD, structuring the environment to identify environments that are potentially distracting and cause problems, helping to organize physical space. And, of course, organizing a physical space is a problem that people with ADHD might have, but getting it set up uh, is important or having it work for them is important. We want to think about communication regarding tasks and establish methods for their implementation. So structuring time, uh, giving brief directions rather than extended uh, directions that are not so well focused. And certainly enhancing interest in the kind of work or activities that's going on is very important because we know that there's a very important relationship between uh, motivation and attention uh, such that... Tasks that are less intrinsically motivating are much harder to attend to. Fortunately, there are a lot of aids that you know people can use now to help achieve these. Uh, certainly, with uh, the burgeoning uh, number of electronic tools that are available to us, we have a lot of opportunities for setting off timers, uh, setting up calendars. Uh, having reminder alarms, and utilizing other task-specific devices. That can be extremely helpful and important. We talked about the importance of targeting time management, organization, and planning, and there's been some uh, work on remediation of these deficits, and uh, one might take the point of view that this is an important thing to do whether one uses medicine or not, that improving symptomatology and its impact is clearly important, but learning how to self-regulate and self-manage is going to be important, whatever you do with medicine. And there are various uh, psychosocial approaches that people have begun to look at, although they're only now beginning to reach the level of what I would call evidence-based treatments. So these interventions uh, utilize didactic techniques, in-session, exercise, and take-home activities. They basically help individuals learn to break down complex tasks, and make use of many of the kinds of aids that uh, we talked about just a moment ago. Now, one such study was developed by Mary Solanto. She just completed a uh, federally funded uh, randomized control study where adults with ADHD were treated with either this metacognitive uh, behavioral treatment or an attention support group. So unlike many studies, this one actually had, had a comparison group course, narrows the effect of the active treatment, Uh, and yet the psychosocial treatment separated from this attention support group. The subjects were stratified with respect to uh, drug treatment and uh, they used blinded ratings using adult-sensitive instruments, so instruments that identify the way symptoms present in adults. And the response rates in this study were quite good. They were fairly comparable using both the ADHD investigator self-report scale as an interview and looking specifically at the inattention symptoms and also the Connors Adult ADHD Rating Scale reports of inattention. Now, we're going to move on and talk about pharmacotherapy, and here we can talk about stimulants and non-stimulant treatments. Uh, Certainly, there's been a lot of focus on stimulant treatment, and we now have approved stimulants in both of the main classes, methylphenidate class and the amphetamine class of medications. We have an approved non-stimulant, atomoxetine, and we have a variety of other non-FDA approved treatments which have demonstrated efficacy. We can think about the alpha-2 agonists and in particular Guamfacine extended release, which was recently approved for the treatment of ADHD in children and adolescents, but is not approved for the treatment of ADHD in adults. Bupropion, which is an approved antidepressant, which has multicenter data in support of its use in adults. And modafinil, which is an atypical stimulant for approved for treatment of narcolepsy, has good validating data for ADHD in children. Not so much in adults, but it could theoretically be used off-label for that indication as well. It's important to spend a little time thinking about the brain mechanisms that are implicated in ADHD as we think about approaching treatment. And increasingly, we know that the neural systems that regulate attention and activity level and self-regulatory behavior are highly complex. And in the past, we've tended to focus on certain areas of the brain to the exclusion of others. On the other hand, we know that that the circuits are really much more robust. The number of neurotransmitters and receptors are also quite robust. And so we know that there's really an important and delicate balance in communication across these neural networks. Most of the attention here has focused on The so-called frontostriatal network in in ADHD, but we know about other cortical areas that are related to attention. And we've tended to focus a lot on the catecholamine mechanisms in in ADHD, in part because of uh, very strong basic science data that indicates that they have an important role, and also because of the clinical effects of the treatments that work in ADHD. On the other hand, it turns out that variety of other neurotransmitter systems contribute to the regulation of these circuits and functions. Now, I spoke about the different classes of stimulants, methylphenidate and amphetamine. They're, they're quite similar, but they're not identical. And uh, both classes block reuptake to presynaptic uh, dopamine and norepinephrine transporters. Amphetamine uh, is additionally implicated in release of catecholamine from presynaptic nerve terminals. Atomoxetine functions as a selective reuptake blocker of the norepinephrine transporter. It does not have any selective direct effects on dopamine. On the other hand, dopamine is taken up into presynaptic nerve terminals in the prefrontal cortex by norepinephrine transporters. And in that way, there is a direct regulatory effect on dopamine. The alpha-2 Agonists tend to work by blockade of postsynaptic receptors, uh, the postsynaptic alpha2 receptors, which are prominent in prefrontal cortex, and in particular, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Now, uh, a variety of studies have showed the, the positive effects of medication in treating cognitive and inhibitory control, and particularly have looked at the ways in which stimulant medications increase neural activity in key regions related to the regulation. Of these activities. We know that individuals with ADHD who are untreated uh, have tended to show hypoactivity in some key regions of prefrontal cortex, anterior cingulate and uh, the basal ganglia and that typically treatment with stimulants increases activation across these regions and this information has been nicely illustrated in findings from functional MRI studies in support of these theories. Now, moving from the science of the treatment to the clinical effects of the treatment, I think there are a few important uh, basic observations to make. First of all, treatment targets often differ in adults with ADHD than children, in part because there's a predominance of inattention-related impairments. And while those impairments may be present in children as well, they're more selectively present in adults or at least in adults who seek treatment. Also, treating mood dysregulation as an associated feature seems to take on even greater significance in adults than it does in children, particularly as the rates of mood regulation problems and frank depression increase with age. Adults may need treatment for a more extended period of time because their days are set up differently than children. I mentioned that all the major medication classes that are approved in children are now approved in adults, although not every formulation within each of those classes. This rather positive state of affairs is really only characteristic of the last seven or eight years when there's been an explosion of medication, treatment, development, at work, and regulatory work in adults with ADHD. It's important to recognize that the approved doses are not often the same in children and adults typically what one would expect is to see that you'd need a higher dose to treat adults. And if you look you know, at, at some data, you can see clearly that adults need higher absolute dosing of stimulants to achieve the same effect, although typically if you look in a weight-based approach to dosing, they may not need as high a dose. On the other hand, paradoxically, The approved doses of several of the stimulant formulations are actually lower in adults than they are in children. This is not intuitive, and it it may not even be correct, but it reflects the failure of the higher doses to separate in forced-dose titration trials. We talked about the difference between the day of a child and the day of an adult, and so it's important to dose adequately and really thoroughly over the course of the day. Also, the safety considerations for treatments are not identical in children and adults. There's some risk of cardiovascular adverse events across age groups, but of course the baseline cardiovascular status of children and adults is different. Kids tend to run higher pulses and lower blood pressures than adults, and hypertension in adults in the United States is a fairly large problem. And we'll see that the stimulants and atomoxetine do increase pulse and blood pressure by a little bit so that it makes monitoring of cardiovascular status very important. Now, there are a lot of supportive data that have followed the registration trials for each of the agents. The effect sizes of the drugs when dosed in a comparable fashion are more or less the same the uh, effect sizes in adults tend to be somewhat lower than they are in children with stimulant treatment for a variety of complicated reasons, possibly because the symptomatology that we're hoping to treat is somewhat different, and uh, certainly because of the reliance on self-report of symptoms and the predominance of inattention symptoms, one would expect to see a somewhat higher placebo response rate in adults, and that is, in fact, what one sees. But one sees it in different studies uh, somewhat differently. But you see very nice separation for all of the agents from placebo relatively quickly within a couple of weeks of treatment. And uh, we've looked at data for immediate release methylphenidate, uh, for uh, dextroamphetamine immediate release, for mixed amphetamine salts extended release, for D-methylphenidate extended release, methylphenidate, which is a sustained release formulation, and uh, most recently for list dexamphetamine or vivance. Just a word about uh, some of these formulations. So uh, methylphenidate comes in racemic form and more selective uh, dextro form, and with the D-stereoisomer being the one that binds to the receptor. Now, both are approved for use in adults, and it's not clear whether there's any advantage to giving D or DL-methylphenidate, but both work well. And uh, formulations differ to some extent, not only in terms of what the active drug is, but how it's formulated. And so some of the characteristics of treatment will reflect the formulation as well as the medication. Oros-methylphenidate is a continuous release formulation which differs substantially in its release mechanism from the others. Listexamphetamine is a prodrug of dextroamphetamine, which means that, that the molecule itself is inactive until it's split into its component parts of L-lysine and dextroamphetamine, with L-lysine being inert and, uh, and naturally occurring, amino acid and deamphetamine and amphetamine being the actual treatment and the placebo control data for LISTX amphetamine are quite strong. Common side effects of stimulants are important to recognize. We typically think of the medications as being highly effective and highly safe and very well tolerated. We typically think of the most common side effects as being nuisance side effects. On the other hand, quote-unquote nuisance side effects can be very important to the patients who take the medications, and they can have a Uh, quite a prominent impact on adherence to treatment, which is an important consideration for patients and physicians alike. In general, the side effect profiles of methylphenidate and amphetamine are similar differences or purported differences across studies are more likely related to sample differences, dosing, or other study-specific variables. And they might even include the percentage of subjects who were previously treated with the agent being studied before the study because that's going to affect the side effect rate in that study. The Most commonly observed side effects are dry mouth, insomnia, nausea or abdominal pain, appetite suppression, headache, edginess, and slight changes in cardiovascular indices that are not considered clinically significant at the group level. The most important of these that present initially are insomnia and appetite suppression, although typically there's accommodation to these over the course of treatment. Now, the rationale for non-stimulant treatment in ADHD is also rather clear. Stimulants are highly effective treatments, but there's poor response or tolerability in some patients. Suboptimal response is not uncommon, You know, meaning the, the minority of patients who don't respond well it, it still represents a pretty big number. The stimulants represent a relative or you know, an actual labeled contraindication for some comorbid conditions, such as tic disorders, anxiety disorders, and substance abuse disorders. Some patients won't take stimulants. Some doctors won't prescribe them. And, uh, of course, there continues to be risk for diversion or abuse of stimulants, which are scheduled to drugs. Now, the neurobiological basis for use of non-stimulant treatment in ADHD depends on the fact that that the agents that are used all affect catecholamine neurotransmission in ways that ought to be beneficial for attention, self-regulation, and executive control. Most non-stimulants target norepinephrine with direct or indirect effects on dopamine. And certainly, there's a prominence of norepinephrine receptors in certain brain regions that are implicated in ADHD. And so, all of this supports the use of these agents in treatment. Of the non-stimulants, the only one that's approved for use in adults with ADHD is adamoxetine. The alpha-2 agonist guanfacine, which is an approved antihypertensive, is not labeled for ADHD in adults, although it's labeled for ADHD in children and adolescents in the extended release form. An immediate release form of guanfacine is also available, but again, not labeled for ADHD. Clonidine is another alpha-2 agonist. It's less selective than guanfacine for the alpha-2A receptor, but it has reasonably solid data in youth with ADHD and comorbid tick disorder in particular. Guanfacine is, as I mentioned, approved in children and could represent a good option in adults, particularly because this medication tends to lower pulse and blood pressure a little bit. And again, given the cardiovascular status of adults, There could be interest there, but the drug has mainly not been studied in the adult population. Several newer antidepressants, uh, command interest in particular, bupropion, has had several controlled studies in adults, one of which is multi-site, despite the fact that it's not labeled for adults. Tricyclic antidepressants have numerous studies demonstrating efficacy across age groups, but because of issues related to cardiovascular toxicity, And also tolerability, these medications are mainly included for their historical interest rather than their therapeutic interest in the year 2010. The data for non-stimulants in adults with ADHD looks pretty much like the stimulant data with reasonable improvement separates from placebo within the first couple of weeks of treatment, particularly more so in people who are likely to be good responders but as with stimulants, the effect size of atomoxetine is lower in adults than children. And, you know and we say around 50 to 60 percent of the effect size in adults that we see in kids. And the effect size of atomoxetine in adults is, is around 0.4, so moderate to large. Common side effects for atomoxetine include dry mouth, uh, insomnia in adults, although we talk about sedation in children. I think you can see either. Nausea because the compound is a gastric irritant. Decreased appetite initially, which generally resolves and may be related more to GI distress than appetite per se. Decreased libido, as with other noradrenergic agents, erectile difficulty in older males, and again, some increase in pulse and blood pressure, as with the stimulants. Atomoxetine does not have abuse liability, though, in which it distinguishes from stimulants. It doesn't bind to receptors associated with abuse potential. It doesn't increase uh, dopamine directly in striatum and nucleus accumbens uh, regions in which we think dopamine levels may relate to reinforcement. It's not reinforcing in animal self-administration studies. In human studies that have looked at abuse liability, whether the drug produces euphoria, whether people like it and would recommend that their friends take it for recreational purposes, this drug just doesn't get very high ratings on any of those scales. The stimulants, which of course do have abuse liability, probably have lower abuse liability in the longer acting formulations because they tend to have more gradual onset and offset and because they may cause less euphoria. Listexamphetamine was thought to present a particular advantage requiring metabolism by the GI system before it became active. But we now know that listexamphetamine gets into the bloodstream as listexamphetamine and that it's gradually broken down in the bloodstream as well. Uh, So the GI transport explanation doesn't account for decreased abuse liability of of that medication, but the more gradual breakdown of of the drug would. PET studies also show a lower likability of long-acting methylphenidate versus immediate-release methylphenidate. I mentioned previously the importance of screening for cardiac risk in treating patients with ADHD and particularly in treating adults. It's important to take a careful personal history and family history of congenital or acquired cardiac disease. We want to think about family history of premature cardiac disease, palpitations, chest pain, syncope, post-exercise symptoms, of course. We want to think about anything that would be related to cardiac outflow problems, which is a particular risk. And it's important to remember to ask about other medications, including over-the-counter medications that may interact with stimulants, Several stimulant like formulations, also nicotine, it's worth asking about. Typically, a routine medical exam is suggested. You should monitor pulse and blood pressure at a baseline and follow up. There's been considerable controversy about whether you need to get electrocardiograms. I think that you should have a low index of suspicion for obtaining a cardiogram, and given the fact that many adults have routine cardiograms to ask an adult to get one prior to treatment would not be an unreasonable thing to do. There are no data that are specific to treating comorbidity in adults with ADHD, and uh, there are somewhat more data in children, so typically we say that it's important to extrapolate from the child and adolescent studies. It's important to talk about treatment of ADHD in the context of comorbidity because, as I mentioned previously, ADHD frequently presents in Uh, together with other disorders. It's also important to think about drug interactions in cases where combined treatment for different disorders is going to be undertaken. As a general rule, I think we can say that both stimulants and adamoxetine are effective regardless of whether comorbidity is present. As a general rule, we would say that it's important to treat comorbid disorders. And in many cases, the disorder other than ADHD can be a more urgent uh, indication for treatment. So, serious depressions, disabling anxiety. One might want to think about parsimonious agents, but one might also want to think about decreasing the depression and decreasing the anxiety before going forward with treatment for ADHD. Anamoxetine has some data in children to suggest that it can be useful in, the, in treatment of ADHD and anxiety together and adamoxetine and particularly the alpha-2 agents look like they might be very good treatments for ADHD and comorbid tick disorders, although one should also say that many people with comorbid tick disorders can be treated with the stimulants and that the intensity of ticks tend to decrease over the course of a lifespan, which may make it easier to treat adults with ticks with stimulants than children. The fact that bupropion is an approved antidepressant makes this a particularly attractive choice adults with ADHD and significant depressions. In contrast, while one could consider the use of other antidepressants that target the serotonin system, typically these have not been seen as having the same level of impact in ADHD. So just to summarize, ADHD in adults is certainly frequently occurring and that we now have really good data regarding treatment with a variety of medications and even now emerging data on uh, non-medication treatments in adults. Pharmacotherapy with stimulants or non-stimulants can be very effective. We would say that adults may require higher doses but typically lower milligram per kilogram doses. Treatment should fit the duration of the impairment, so you want to think about the day. You want to think about the importance of cardiac monitoring before treatment and over the course of treatment. Psychosocial interventions or environmental manipulation are often also required, and so it's less often a matter of one or the other in treating adults. The combination of these treatments is intuitively attractive, but we really don't have data to guide clinical decision-making in this area. But there are a number of face-valid ways that we might consider approaching questions in relation to combined use of medication and psychosocial treatments.